First thing you want to do is make it clear what that culture is. And so you embed it into your systems, your processes, your, and how you think from myself to all, everybody else, how they think and hire. The second is if you hire on that culture and you spouse it, hopefully all your other leaders will do the same. Hello, and welcome to Security Visionaries, hosted by Jason Clark, CSO at Netscope. You just heard from today's guest, Sanjay Barry, founder and CEO of Netscope. Being an industry leader for over two decades has given Sanjay insight into what makes or breaks a security company. Culture. Determining what company culture is and driving it into every facet of business is just as important as the work that's being done. Sanjay has created a culture at Netscope that relies on innovation, transparency, and collaboration. Without it, Netscope would not be where it is today. Because some of us are working remotely and connecting through a screen instead of face-to-face, -face, culture is more important than ever. It's the North Star of our work, as Sanjay puts it. Having a strong culture isn't just up to the leaders, but the responsibility of every person in the company. And from that comes a positive impact on employees and business itself. So before we dive into Sanjay's interview, here's a brief word from our sponsor. The Security Visionaries podcast is powered by the team at Netscope. Netscope is the SASE leader offering everything you need to provide a fast, data-centric, and cloud-smart user experience at the speed of business today. Learn more at netscope.com. Without further ado, please enjoy episode 11 of Security Visionaries with Sanjay Barry, founder and CEO of Netscope, and your host, Jason Clark. Welcome to Security Visionaries. I'm your host, Jason Clark, joined by Sanjay Berry, the CEO of Netscope. Sanjay, how are you today? Doing well, fortunately. How are yourself, Jason? Super fantastic. Feeling great <laughs> after, a, after a long weekend. So it's uh, very refreshed. So, you know, what we want to talk about today is, is a little bit about kind of just your vision and your founding of Netscope and just the journey that, uh, you know, kind of your life has brought you to and a little bit about uh, kind of culture and leadership. But I want to start with, you know, seven years ago, you came and met with me when I was the chief strategy and, and, and head of services at, at Optiv, right, to share your vision. I get pitched at while I was in that role by over a thousand security vendors and, uh, you know, spent time with at least 500 CISOs and, and CIOs every single year. And so I was tr really trying to be close to the problem. And, and a lot was changing at the time. And your vision just, it wowed me. It stuck out. So I want to talk about maybe just what was the problem that you were looking at and how did you bring together all of these components that, you know, were seven years in a way almost ahead of their time? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the big things that I love to do is spend time with CIOs, with CISOs, with CTOs, even with CEOs keep your nose to the ground. And what was very clear to me was that amidst this changing environment of how people work, back, remember, nine years ago, work remote happening a little bit. Use of cloud for many was happening, but many were fighting against it. But the reality is that when I looked within a company, I could see that, wait a minute, doesn't matter, actually, in this case, what the CXOs were saying, the users had voted. They were using SaaS. They were working remote. They were bringing their own devices. Most people know when a user votes and an end user decides to do something, it's an immovable force in many times, and there's no point in fighting against that. And so the reality 
is what I saw when I looked within organizations was their data had moved to the internet, to the cloud. Their users had moved using their own devices, working from anywhere. And their apps were slowly moving, even if it was business units moving it, not yet corporate IT. And yet at the same time, if you looked at their budgets, you're like, wait, all of the budgets for networking and security was being spent on things protecting the old world, on-prem apps, assets, data living, you know, in the four brick walls. And that wasn't going to work for what was happening in reality under the hood in the companies. And so it was very clear to me that the perimeter of a company would change, the edge of a company would change, and security would be transformed because the transformation digitally was happening under people's nose. So that's sort of the macro thoughts and learnings and that led to obviously over time the creation of Netscope. You know, I, um, when I was the CISO for Emerson Electric, I, we were a heavy BlackBerry, right? BES shop. And uh, it was... <laughs> hey, don't say too much bad things about BlackBerry. You know, I was Canadian and I grew up right, right I went to university right beside where they were just a fledgling company. <laughs> it was, I, I mean, it was one of the best devices I've ever owned. I think it was indestructible. The key is was. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I was, you know, diehard, like we're, this is, this is the best thing for security. This is what every executive and everybody gets in the company. And I, and, and people started bringing in the iPhone, you know, version one, two. And I said, no, it's not going to happen as a security leader. I said, nope, not allowed. Right. <laughs> and then the CEO got one and then all the direct reports got one and then all their direct reports got one. And I was, it was like that, that's the example of where security says no. And the user and the business just said yes, right? It was the it was the example of what not to do as a security leader today. But back then it wasn't the way, right? And so it just it just kind of happened. But and that's I think a lot what happened with SaaS, right? And where the business and the user just said yes. So what you know, as you as that was one of your main first kind of um, focus areas. What what about SaaS is very hard for security teams? What makes it hard? Yeah. And so, you know, one thing is that the reality when he started the company was we knew this would happen for all the Internet, not just SaaS. But my belief was that all properties on the Internet would look more and more like cloud. Like I call websites just dumb SaaS apps. And the reality is that over time, they would all look like that. And so one, the vision was much broader. The reason that SaaS was the focus um, was to factors. One was obviously, look, nobody was doing anything from a security perspective from it. And when you build a company, you focus on white space, build your brand. And so that's the pragmatic entrepreneur's view is, look, you got you know, this trend is going to happen where all of the internet is going to look like cloud apps. They're going to be based on JSON and APIs and your language is going to change on how you interpret them. But pragmatically, let's focus first to get in the door on how do you secure something that is a wide open problem, and that was SaaS. And the reality is SaaS at that point was 90 plus percent led by business units. You know, it, you'd go to financials and they would say, no, we're not using cloud. You look in and you go, but you use 1000 SaaS apps for marketing and HR and so on. And I couldn't tell you how many times that happened. Now you'd go to a high tech company and they would say, look, we're gonna, we're building our company. Why, why would we not build it by leveraging the beauty and the mobility and the efficiency and the innovation of SaaS. But anywhere beyond that, in that time, they were holding on to the old way of doing things. 
and under their nose stuff was being used in the SaaS world. And so it was a hard problem because your buyer, the person who has the money, they, in many cases, had not yet admitted to their organization that they were using SaaS. And so why were they going to go buy something <laughs> that the company didn't think they were using yet? And so many times, you know, to move that along, you have to rip the blindfolds off and just show them that, wait a minute, it's one of your biggest security risks. You don't even know you're using this. You can't even track the transactions or the data. And this is your most sensitive data. And this is high, high risk. And so rip that blindfold off, show the risk so that they know they have that. They used to call it problem. I said, don't fight the problem. It's not a problem because SaaS is, you know, frankly, where the innovation is going to happen and you're going to end up with the majority of your apps being SaaS. So, hey, get on the front of that and build a program and security that could enable the use of SaaS. Don't view it as, hey, I got to go find it and shut it down. And so that was why there was a lot of confusion on, do I have it? Do I not? Oh, no, I have to convince my org that we have it. Um, and you had to go through all of that. But now, of course, we're well past that. But in the beginning, those were the... Uh, but whenever, you know, what, how did you explain to them that Salesforce or Workday or, you know, any of these SaaS apps, the, the thousands that that organization is using, and only maybe 5% they accept they're using, how did you explain it's different than a website? Yeah, so I'll give you a simple example. We used to go into organizations and we'd say to them, look, on a website, what do you, what do you think the risk of a website is? And they'd say, well, the risk of a website is they go to a malicious website and, you know, they get hit with malware and they infect us, right? And so, oh, okay, great. And then I'd say, well, what's the risk of a SaaS app? And they go, well, the risk of a SaaS app is, and when they thought about it, they went, wait, the risk of a SaaS app is that people use it unfettered to put sensitive data in and they share it everywhere and it propagates, right? It was a data problem actually. And when they realized that, I mean, now everybody knows, well, not everybody, but folks I think realize that data is their most valuable asset. That's what everybody's after. And so SaaS became a data problem. It became a, I want SaaS so that I can process my data faster in a more deeper way I can share my data. I can create more useful data. That's what SaaS was for. Yet then they realize, and that's the risk, is that I need to let people do that, but protect that data. And so that's how, focus them on the data problem. Once they realized that SaaS was there and was never going away. And that was very different than how they viewed websites, which they just viewed as content filtering, frankly. Hey, can you go there or not? Is it bad or good? It was binary. SaaS is not binary. You can't go, is it bad or good? It's good in general, and maybe some of the activities are bad. And so I think it opened up to people's mind a whole notion of, wait a minute, I can't just block or allow. I can't just do what traditional proxies and web filtering does. I need to like actually understand what's going on here so I can set these more granular policies that let people use these apps yet protect our data and stop risky activities. And that, Jason, kind of led to this creation of what we call this layer eight concept of processing internet traffic at the API level, because the only way to intelligently process SaaS and enable it and prevent risky behavior was doing it at this level that we called layer eight in the beginning. Yeah, I feel like uh, we need a new OSI model now. Right? <laughs> 
to, to because most of all the 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 context is is above layer seven, right? It's 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 all what the user's doing. And they always used to say that layer eight's the user problem. I'm like, well, it, you know, it kind of is, right? We we need to know what the user is doing in that app, just like that, that app was on prem. So maybe talk a little bit about SSE, but also how that's different from SASE, which has been around for a couple of years. So SSE, which is obviously a Gartner term for, you know, what uh, in many cases are described, and SASE are very much similar. But the best way to describe the difference between SASE and SSE is SASE is just SSE with an SD-WAN, right? That's the simple way to describe it. And SSE is really this notion of what we just described, a virtual consolidated edge, which has the ability to govern all your internet and on-prem traffic in line and out of band and protect your data and protect against threats. And that integrates with the rest of your ecosystem, your identity, endpoint, and SIM ecosystem. And so in my view, it's one of the four big platforms that a security organization will want to center themselves on. You have your identity platform, your ER, your SIM, SOAR, and then you have your SSE platform as well. And so really for nine years, 10 years early, we used to sit around saying, describing what we do, saying, we're the new cloud edge, we're the secure edge, we're the new virtual perimeter. And okay, well now, <laughs> Gartner stamped a term on it. And as people learn about it they'll, and adopt it, we won't have to go through that description. <laughs> we can say it's SSE. I think uh, you know, people will see this as, as the biggest change in cybersecurity in, in a decade and probably a decade forward, right? It's, it's significant. The consolidation of all of the various technologies that make up SSE is, I mean, that's, that's, that's never been done before. Right? You're basically taking the entire perimeter and virtualizing it into the cloud. Yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, I think as well, like if you're a CIO or you're a CISO, there's the beauty and the simplicity of consolidation. There's obviously the efficiency of processing your traffic and doing SL encryption once and doing data protection in real time and doing it at layer eight. There's all those advantages. And then there's obviously, in my view, a significant cost advantage over time, right? You're not keeping a large part of your infrastructure on-premise, truck rolling it, you're managing it in a consolidated way. And so I think, you know, in many times when you have a new quadrant or you have a new space, a lot of people look at them and go, oh, is that really what I like or what I want? Or is that the future? In this case, I think people realize that, wait, this is actually what we have been talking about doing. Even the most rigid financials um, who hairpin VPN back and stay on prem, even them go, this is where we want to be, right? And this is where we're going to end up. This is our North Star for what used to be data network security. It's categorized now as SSE, and let's step our way into that. And so I really do think that this is a quadrant that has and a space and a name and a category that does redefine that market forever. What's a, last question on just, you know, you being from a Netscope perspective, what is the number one thing that when you talk to them, I mean, you've, you've got thousands of customers now, as you're meeting with all of them, what do you hear as kind of the most consistent problem or, or thing that they want you as the CEO of Netscope to stay true to? So one, I'm, there's, you know, I'm a big believer that in security, you innovate or you die. And we've seen this happen with some of the biggest names in security, right? Some it's already happened. They've got bought by PE, they went down. 
you know, didn't innovate, they invested, you know, 15% of our capital in R&D. I mean, that's a death knell for security companies if you start doing that. And so I think one of the things that has been true to my heart is that when you think about building and being a partner of organizations, they want you to be a step ahead from an innovation point of view. They want you to invest in the R&D because that is the basis of why in many cases they chose you. And so one is I think they, they want us to stay true to what we've been always been doing. And I firmly believe in that. The second is look, in any relationship and in the industry, you're gonna have left turns and right turns and hills. And the other big piece is, hey, be a partner. Like culturally, the company Netscape was founded on the notion of being open, collaborative, you know, a partner. We're not a transactional drive-by company. And I think anybody who works with us knows that. And I think that's what they want, right? They know that they don't know everything. They know that a year down the road, they're going to hit this roadblock or they're going to need X. And they just want partners who work with them on it, right? And uh, I think too many times you have organizations that, especially when they become too bureaucratic or too large, they lose that partnership and intimacy with the customer. And so those two things, you asked me for one, I gave you two. <laughs> so... So on the on that partnership, I mean that that you know the the source of that has to be the culture, right? And Netscope is is known for having a great culture, um, you know, from its customers, from its partners and, and employees. What a uh, you know, how do you maintain that? Like, is 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 Netscope is you know a rocket ship, and you're adding you know you're doubling your employee base? How do you how do you maintain that culture over time? Yeah, it's a good question, and. And actually, it's a question, I think, true of, you know, many folks who may be listening, like if you run a security organization or an IT organization or a part of that, like you keep the same thing about your organization. How do I drive a certain type of culture? And the reality is, one, the first thing you want to do is make it clear what that culture is. And whether you're, you know, five people or, you know, 2,000 or 10,000 or 50,000, people want to know. And so one of the things is we make it very clear what our culture is, you know, the concept of being open, of being innovative, of, you know, being transparent, collaborative. We, we put it everywhere. It's on our walls. It's on our virtual walls. It's in every all hands. It's actually, it's how we rate everyone. At the end of the year, the six cultural traits, people actually get reviewed on. And so you embed it into your systems, your processes, your, and how you think from myself to all, everybody else, how they think and hire. And it has to be that. The second is there's no one person who holds your culture. The reality is that especially as you grow and you're spread worldwide in every geography and every function, every region and every person needs to be a beholder of that culture and especially your regional and your functional and your executive leaders and your individual kind of architect and other North Star people. They need to drive that in how they operate, how they think and how they hire. And so the second is if you hire on that culture and you spouse it, Hopefully all your other leaders will do the same and then you measure it right at the end of the year for each of them. And so, and in between. And so I think it's, it's about that. It's, it's just about driving it. To give you an example, in Netscope, we have four open dialogue calls every few weeks and anybody in the company, depending on your region, because it's done in specific time zones to be amenable to those teams, they come on and they can, for example, ask anything they want of myself. And we have another one tomorrow, for example. And they'll ask, you really get to know what's on people's minds. And they feel comfortable asking you about anything. It could be snacks <laughs> in the in this specific office. It could be, 
you know, some t targeted questions around what we're doing with specific product areas. It could be around benefits. It could be around, you know, how we're making a positive impact, you know, in our giving. It could be so many topics. And the fact that you have such an open door means that you, um, you really are not just saying you want this culture and reviewing it and metricing it, but you got to live it. And I think it needs to be lived across the board from everyone. And, and that drives culture. You'll deviate. Everybody deviates. But you got to stamp those deviations out and just be self-aware enough and correct. I've never seen a company that does four all-hands open calls with, uh, with all employees where they can ask you anything they want. It's not an easy thing to manage, Sanjay. I'm sure you've gotten some tough questions where you're like, okay, and you, you, have, to, you have to respond, you know on the spot. So uh, do you have, do you have like a, you know, do, do you have a number of people that are kind of ready to, to type you what the actual answer is if you don't know it? <laughs> well, so it's funny, like, I think, you know, we have a place in our company now where everybody feels comfortable asking, you know, anything. And like, so you will get the absolute, you know, toughest questions. But the beauty is not even mattering what the question is, the fact that the person asked it to me is success. Because that means you create a culture where they're comfortable being open and asking it. And if it's on their mind, it's probably on others' mind. And so we want to talk about it. And so one is I try to answer every question that I can to, the, you know, to my knowledge. But if I don't know something, and I'll give you an example. <laughs> Once somebody asked me about you know, bills rising during the pandemic in our health plan and the pharmacies. And I didn't know the answer to the question. I was like, really? I didn't even know. <laughs> but what we promise is we follow up. And so we followed up that week. We tracked down what was going on with, uh, you know, this specific pharmacy, nothing to do with our specific health plan. It's a very nuanced question. And you go, why? Wow, they're asking that. But, you know, the reality is that was what's important to that person at that time. And so us making sure we listen and follow through. Yes, there are people who help do that. And I think the key is making sure that, everybody in those forums is heard and followed up on, even if it's not live because you don't have the answer. <laughs> so so you, you talked about, you know, so much of the culture is about hiring, right? And, and, and your leaders, right? Representing that culture and then who they hire. It, it, as you've grown, right, as a leader throughout your career, you look back, where, what have been some of your, you know, this is a two-part question, what have been some of your greatest kind of learning experiences and and maybe any a little bit about people who have also helped mentor you. Learning experiences, for me, one of the things that I love about what I do and working with folks like yourself and others is you're constantly learning. And that's the beauty. It keeps you going and you're like, wow, this is amazing. And so one, I think one of the things that everyone should know is that, look, your goal, like, for example, my goal as CEO is to bring people on who are amazing at what they do, way better than you. I could ever be at those functions and let them loose, like bring, get them aligned on a common vision and a goal, but don't micromanage them and let them ultimately, in our case, be on the entrepreneurs they want. And so for me, I've always felt there's a great, I don't know who said it, but great quote that, you know, leadership isn't about control. It's about influence. Right. And, and I really do take that to heart when you're thinking about leading your organization it's not about what you tell them to do or what you control, right? It's about bringing in people who really are entrepreneurs, who want to own an area and influencing them so that in their heart, they actually want to go down that path. And so that's one, to capstone it. Leadership, I think, learning is about influence. 
more than anything. The second, which we just touched on, is that everybody wants to come to a place and they want to be part of a mission where not only does it have a positive impact, but frankly, that they like working with the people in the company. And that's about culture. And so I have learned through good and bad places that culture in many cases is this decider. It's why people join your organization. It's why they stay. It's why they put in that effort. And I think that is often lost. It's often lost in many cases when you have very large public companies with large boards. You know, they don't even operate well at that level. How are the people in the company supposed to operate well when, you know, you don't even have your governance team operating well? And so I think culture all the way down and up and across and everywhere and then people really taking to heart that leadership is about influence, um, not about control. So those are two things that I would take away. Yeah, it gives, it gives your company a soul. Totally. But so the second part of that question from a mentorship. So I've had many people that I would look to in different areas as mentors. And so, you know, one, as you grow your career, you have you know, different types of mentors. You may have in the beginning of your life, you may have somebody who is not a domain mentor, I call it. It's a, wow, you know, I'm really inspired by that person. I may not even know them well. I'm just inspired by watching them and doing what they do. And, and so for me, that would have been my father who came to the country with just a few bucks, lived in a YMCA and is in Canada and just, you know, built himself and his family up. And so that was a great mentor for me just to say, wow, what does hard work and determination and so on really, what happens when, when you apply yourself to do that and do it in the right way? And so that's what I call a non-domain mentor. Domain mentors like where are when you, hey, you're, you're picking your air, you're driving to do what you do. For me, I view, a, you know, throughout my career, a bunch of them. Like right now, I view a gentleman named John Thompson as a great, as a mentor. He used to be the chairman of Microsoft and Symantec and so on. But you sit down with someone like that and is the most down-to-earth person who talks only about what he could have done better than all of his accomplishments and really sets the tone for how, you know, you want to drive positive impact and culture. And yet in our space also knows a heck of a lot about security and, and beyond. And so it's kind of a mix of a domain and a sole mentor. And those are just some examples of uh, people. Those are great. Those are the two brilliant examples. I think that people you know, and leaders, right, don't focus on that enough of, of who you surround yourself with, who you're inspiring to be. I mean, I, I also like a, a saying that, you know, you are, you're pretty much, you know, the result of, of the top 10 people, right, that, that you are with, right, that, you're, that you surround yourself with. That's who, that's who you become. And when you're, you're surrounded by people you inspire to be right, as a human, as a leader, right, then, you know, you, you naturally get those attributes from them, right? So I think that's something that I think everybody should always think about is who am I surrounding myself with and who's, who am I being inspired by? The, uh, so, so in our final segment part here, um, kind of, it's, a, it's more kind of a, a quick hit on, you know, some quick things about you, right? The first one is what's one talent or skill you have that's not that wouldn't be on your resume. <laughs> wow. Okay. There you go. Well, let's see. I can play basketball and tennis, 
And in Canada, where they don't have the professional sports bar that we have here, I wasn't so bad. <laughs> so nice. <laughs> so you were you were you a point guard or a shooting guard or or, or what? You know what? I was definitely not a center <laughs> or a forward. <laughs> so I would definitely say I would fall in the category of a guard. And then tennis, uh, you know, usually we'd play both singles and doubles. Nice. Cool. And so if you were not doing what you're doing today um, in network and security, what would you be doing? So you didn't say what um, I would say what I would want to be doing is playing in. Yes. What, would you want to be doing? <laughs> what I'd want to be doing is I want to be playing in the NBA. Damn it, Jason. <laughs> so, but the reality <laughs> is that if there's a division 100 levels below the NBA, that's what I'd be playing in. <laughs> so love it. There you go. Yeah. The second would be some baseball league that's 10 levels below minor league. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't say hockey. Yeah, uh, you know, I grew up playing stick hockey, but I was never really the ice hockey player. So, yeah. I always also just want to keep my teeth. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Well, so what, what's, um, all right, we actually named, I was going to ask you what's your favorite hobby, but you kind of, you know, you, you just kind of named it. It's, it's probably a lot of watching, watching these sports. Um, so for a first time CEO of, uh, let's call it something, you know, the 2000 cybersecurity companies or, you know, or more that there is, what would be your top piece of advice for them? So one, we talked about some of it, culture and innovation matter most. That's the summary culture. Drive your company the way that you would like that culture to live and never forget about innovation, right? And, the, and as part of that, you're going to get people who tell you to do something different, change your culture. Don't let it be open and collaborative for whatever reason. They'll tell you to flood the market with sales and marketing and don't, you know, and lessen R&D or innovate. My summary in telling you this is culture and innovation matter most and don't let anyone tell you otherwise and don't let anyone change your view if you truly believe what I just said. And you, that is perhaps the hardest thing. There are going to be so many times and opportunities and people who try to make you sacrifice those things. And if you want to chart and play the long game, culture and innovation matter the most. Love it. And then last question. What would, you, what would be that piece of advice you'd give to any CISO? that just landed and is a first time CISO? Well, first of all, me giving advice to a CISO on their job, you know, there are far better people to do it. I know my place. <laughs> so for one, I'll tell you that because, you know, I admire so much what, you know, all those women and men have to do in that role. It's such a tough role. And so- But you've met, you've met with thousands and thousands, right? I've met with thousands, yeah. And look, I think like the advice I would give them is one, Build bridges, as all of us know, under an organization, security can get things done, but they need the support both of the board, they need the support of their networking and IT and you know beyond partners. And so a way to build that bridge early, to make sure that folks don't feel that, hey, security is an inhibitor or threatening, right? That's the number one thing, because we all know you need others to accomplish your goal, and that includes business units. So, you know, building those bridges. Two is reach out to the innovation ecosystem. Like if you don't have inroads into new companies, innovative companies, CEOs, others in those, you know, try to build that network because 
hearing and seeing what is actually what's happening right in that ecosystem will open up so many ideas for you but also will let you unleash a great set of technologies to you know take advantage or solve some of the big challenges are going through and so one is reach inside and build bridges and then reach outside and build bridges to that innovation ecosystem yeah amazing well, that is all we have time for. And Sanjay, thank you so much for, for sharing, you know, your your insights and, and passion and and thank you for, you know, it's it's just every this whole conversation, but also, you know, I think it's been it's just amazing to see again, we had this conversation seven years ago where you, you know, drew on a whiteboard your vision and to to see it, you know, to turn into the, you know, one of the fastest growing security companies in the world, one of the largest security companies now. And and also, you know, creating a, uh, an entire category based on your vision is, you know, it's, it's you know, it's just amazing. It's rare to ever see, and uh, I think it's it's you know, obviously just keep keep doing what you're doing and uh, help them make the world a better place. So, thank you so much, Sanjay. Yeah, thanks, Jason, for inviting myself. Great, had a lot of fun. The Security Visionaries Podcast is powered by the team at Netscope. Looking for the right cloud security platform to enable your digital transformation journey? The Netscope Security Cloud helps you safely and quickly connect users directly to the internet from any device to any application. Learn more at netskope.com. Thank you for listening to Security Visionaries. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and share it with someone you know who might enjoy it. Stay tuned for episodes releasing every other week, and we'll see you in the next one.